Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hi. Hi. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How about you? Oh, I'm well. I'm swell well. Swell? And well. Swell you and well. Are you swole? No, I'm definitely not swole. Oh. I'm a little... I'm, I'm plump. <laughs> You're fluffy. I'm fluffy and not very defined. But no one is here to hear about that. They are uh, here if they are here and listening. Uh, to I'm assuming learn. nobody is by now. I'm not. I, I, I also assume that. But it's okay. We're having a nice conversation right now. Yep. And I'm certain that you don't want to hear about uh, about my my fluffiness. Yeah. This is Once for All Delivered, a podcast where we talk about theology and scripture and culture and things in that general orbit. I am Andrew Smith. I am Caleb Castro. And we are picking up right where we left off last week on our live show. Basically, everything we said at the end of that show was was a lie because we said we were going to record some more, and we didn't. Um, so we're actually right back here again live, picking up where we left off again tonight. Uh, we are working through our Comparing Catechism series, still looking at Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg and the various texts from the 30s of the Westminster Larger Catechism dealing with the issue of why the God-man. That's right. So why? Um, and so we were using Why the, is my uh, power flickering? Why is your what? My power flickering. It uh, stopped. I think we're okay. We're okay. It never All does right. this, except it did this during the show last week and is doing it again tonight for some reason. It's it's never a dull moment with us. We're, uh, yeah, always always trying to find new challenges for Andrew to, uh, to rip his hair out. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're, uh, so with Lord's Day 6, uh, like Andrew had said, uh, why the God-man is, is the, uh, is the question so why uh must the mediator be a true and righteous man but why must he also be true god we discussed uh why must he be uh, a true and righteous man on uh the first part of this Lord's day so you can go back and listen to that uh, we're gonna be picking up right here with question answer 17 why must he not only be true and righteous man but why must he also be true god so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So, Stop. yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, above all, uh, what's emphasized here, uh, we, we see that the power of his divinity that he might bear in his humanity. So you're, you're seeing this, 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 uh, this contrast here, in a sense, or compliment, 
uh, depending how you want to put it, as, as divinity and humanity. Um, because human nature must pay for, uh, for his own sin, so man sinned, therefore an ox can't pay for man's sin, uh, man must pay for man's sin, and yet the problem is that no man would be able to pay or be able to withstand uh, that full measure of uh, what must be paid to God for the death of sin. Uh, it would take an infinite measure of time, uh, an eternity of time, and an infinite measure of uh, of what must be rendered to him. So Jesus Christ is sent as the one, uh, as, as, as himself, as this God-man, to um, he himself growing up and being without sin, wholly obedient and, uh, uh, and righteous throughout the entirety of his life and dependent on God in conformity to his will, his divinity is able to withstand that. Um, I believe it was uh, just a, as, as a manner of comparison. Um, and Klaus Skilder, uh, a uh, 20th century Reformed theologian and pastor um, in the Netherlands, he, uh, he had said at one point something to the effect of, uh, in paraphrase, um, no one, no one living uh, can basically understand. No one living uh, can fully understand uh, hell, the nature of God's full wrath, um, because for 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 a believer, first of all, um, that is it's a concept that for the believer being in Christ will never have to undergo, and moreover. Uh, no one would be, uh, none of us even would be able to, even if we went into hell as a believer, none of us would be able to undergo uh, and experience hell even in the same way that Christ did. That is, in his, that, that Christ went in there for it and came out from the wrath. He had fully satisfied it. He was preserved by his divinity, though he suffered and died in his humanity. And then he was raised again, so it, it's it's that it, it's a wholly unique thing there. Um, the way that the uh, Canons of Dort would put it um, would would say that uh, Christ's uh, sacrifice um, was of infinite value. Uh, what he paid cannot be paid by anyone else, and we see the effects of that in as a. Uh, uh, question answer 17 says at the end that he was able to earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So not only is our debt pardoned, but we are even given uh, a, a greater state than we had prior. We're given a true righteousness and the 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 uh, the, the reward of eternal life, uh, something that we ourselves could not merit, could not could not earn for ourselves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So when you look at the parallel text in the larger catechism, which this is question 38, if I can get it to come up, technology, am I right? Um, if you're watching on the video, if you're listening on the audio, you're like, what's he talking about? 
Uh, the larger catechism question 38 poses and answers the similar question. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. So you see here some of the same points that are made in the Heidelberg. Requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. A mere human would not be able to bear the wrath of God. A mere human would not satisfy uh, God's justice. A mere human that even attempted such a thing would be destroyed. And those who do not belong to God, who do spend eternity in hell... They're not ever going to get any closer to paying off their debt. If anything, they will continue to add to their debt as they continue to persist for all eternity in their sin and rebellion against God, even in eternal torment. Um, and we'll probably talk about this some more down the road as we get into where the Heidelberg uh, treats in its exposition of the Apostles' Creed and the Westminster Standards uh, teach in other places uh, concerning what is said in the creed by he descended into hell um, because this is something mm -hmm. that comes up again when we have that discussion but yeah god in order to make an atonement for our sins christ had to bear the full wrath and penalty and condemnation for our sins and i think one of the things this does for us is it points out to us once again as many things often do the sinfulness of sin the a true weight and guilt and evil and awfulness of our sin in what it required to pay for it. You see, we don't like to think about this. We like to think we're still generally pretty good people and that our sin is not that bad. But sin was so severe that it took God himself being incarnate in the flesh and suffering in the ways which he did in order to make atonement for them. And suffering... Um, in ways that we could not even begin to do and bearing a weight and a penalty that we could not even begin to pay. Um, but also, too, it points out just how glorious Christ is in his divinity. You know, something that we can't even begin to pay for in an eternity, uh, he pays off uh, in his suffering and his death in one act. Um, so it shows... Uh, something that comes up over and over again in our theology, the great distance between God and man, and also the, the splendor and glory of Christ the God-man in his power and in what he is able to do to make atonement for us. Uh, and I want to point out real fast uh, just three words here uh, in, that, in the middle of that, uh, of the larger catechism. Um, paralleling what we have in uh, question answer 17 that he earned for us and restored to us here you have uh, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings and obedience so worth efficacy and obedience um you know uh you you put it in uh, in the sense the the uh the negative aspect of of uh just how sinful sin is right that it took god himself to come and do this 
uh, in, 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 in this, in a positive, in the positive aspect of it, uh, and, and totally flipping that too. We, we say that we, we can say that, um, those words worth efficacy and obedience highlight how he did what man could not do, uh, positively. He overcame death by his own power. He overcame all, all this in his own and did this in his own power. And that, that's, that's precisely the, 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 uh, you know, what, what, what's, what's the issue here with, with man, right? Uh, as, as you put it, Andrew, the, um, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as pretty good, you know, and it's, it's just, we, we absolutely cannot of our own power come back from death. I mean, it is as, as absurd as, uh, you know, if Lazarus raised himself out of the grave or as I, uh, I was, I was writing a sermon earlier this afternoon and saying, um, uh, in reality, we're not, uh, no one can actually join the church, right, in, in, in the invisible sense, in the invisible church. It would be, you know, the church is and always will be one body because it's all caught up in Jesus Christ. We we're going to see something similar in a second here. But it's uh, trying to join the church or trying to make oneself alive again would be like trying to will yourself to to grow a third eye or something. You know, you cannot make yourself a part of this body of Christ. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. You cannot save yourself. Right. Um, in in order for us to be saved, the price of that salvation, it had to be earned. It had to be merited. Um, not to get off too far into the weeds. This is a discussion we could go very deep into the weeds on the issues of merit um, it's something that comes up, for instance, in discussions we've had about Meredith Quine and his theology, um, negatively speaking, how man cannot truly and properly merit before God. Um, but again, but stated positively, one who is God can truly and properly merit. One of the historically understood categories of doing what is meritorious before God is the one who does a meritorious work has to be equal to the one the work is done for. Mm -hmm. So the only one who can do meritorious works before God is one who is equal to God, which is one who is God, mm -hmm. the Son of God. Um, you know, that's important. Uh, th that's important to establish um, when we establish the worthiness of Christ's person and work for doing what he did. Uh, but we get some other remarks here, too, at the end of question 38 of the larger catechism that go maybe a little bit beyond what the Heidelberg says. Mm -hmm. And there are issues that we'll talk about in other places as well. Right. Or say 23 um, and 24 pick this up, really. Much of this. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, giving his spirit to them, though making the point that, uh, you know, God, the Holy Spirit is God, and it would take one who is God to send the Spirit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one who is a mere man cannot command cannot command one of the persons of the Trinity as to what to do. As far as conquering all their enemies, this is something that's taken up in more detail when we look at, at the threefold office of Christ, particularly looking at his kingly office, and then, of course, bringing them into everlasting salvation, which is the ends and the goals of all of this. Right. And the, uh, in, in the, the speaking of, uh, of the Spirit, um, remember that the Catechism builds upon itself. 
without re repetition in a sense. Um, so it's trying to keep things brief. Where uh, question answer eight had already asked the question, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And in a sense, when you go into question answer 18, this this is this is partially what's in in uh, the back of um, in in the back of the author's mind. Uh, uh, in fact, um, in the uh, in Zacharias or Sinus's commentary, um, he he actually draws out a rather lengthy section on question on question answer 18. Um, I, I've seen I've seen uh, you know some commentators and people that you know, and, and sermon writers uh, or sermon writers <laughs> preachers that, that's what they're called. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a new had a one. long day. Um, preachers that uh, uh, you know will say that this is kind of a redundant uh, question answer because it's already been said uh, in the past three questions and answers in a sense, but or sinus obviously saw it as a very important, uh, as having very important implications. Uh, so the, uh, which we can move on to here in a second. Um, uh, if, if that's all you had on, on 17, Andrew. Yep. Okay. You mean 38? Uh, yeah, it says there on 38. <laughs> so I was looking right at it too. Caleb, the Heidelberg supremacist. <laughs> Heidel. Um, uh, so question and answer 18, this is tying together now the previous two uh, topics of why the God-man. Uh, the question comes up then, who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time, a true and righteous man? And our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. And so uh, you get some key words, uh, first of all, the title Lord, Um so uh, this, this will all come up in exposition later on when it gets into the Apostles' Creed. But the title Lord, the name Jesus, and the, the, uh, and the office Christ given to us. Uh, so he is one who is sent and presented uh, for uh, not a partial but a complete deliverance from sin. So uh, uh, satisfaction in a freeing from sin, but also uh, uh, in active obedience and righteousness. Um, but what Ursinus does here in these short phrases, uh, and I'm going to compact this down even further as much as possible. As I said, it's a little lengthy otherwise. Um, he, he says, he, he gets at a little bit more at why is the mediator necessary? And he, he, he frames it in, in, a very, uh, in, a, in a very Trinitarian manner. Um, said, uh, he, he, he speaks that, first of all, and, and, and when I say Trinitarian, he, he's, he's doing this, he wants to really emphasize what the Son's work is. He focuses on the economic Trinity here. So he says that the mediator could not be the Father, because the Father does not work through himself. He works through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not a messenger. He is sent by no one. He sends the mediator. Uh, the Holy Ghost could not be the mediator because he was to be sent by the mediator into the hearts of the elect. It must be the Son alone that is the mediator. He, he, he uses pretty interesting language further of saying that uh, uh, Christ alone is able to affect adoption, the one who, who puts adoption into efficacy uh, he says the, the father is not the one who 
uh, who, who, who does that work of bringing us directly into adoption. He is the one who, who adopts us through the son. Uh, so he, he kind of repeats those prepositions there. Um, uh, but he, he then gives uh, several further reasons. He, um, he says that the, the son, it is the son uh, who must be the mediator because the son alone is the word. And the word means he is the ambassador of the father, the one who reveals the will. And again, through whom the father operates and gives the spirit through whom the second creation is accomplished. It is through the son that we are made new creatures. All things uh, were made by the son for him and through him. It is uh, I'm almost done here. It, it the mediator who sends immediately. So directly the Holy spirit uh, he makes a nuance saying that it, it is the Son alone who thus sends the Holy Spirit. The Father does, yes, send the Spirit, holy, uh, a double procession. But he says it is through the Son. The Son sends the Spirit immediately from the Father. He says that it was uh, the mediator, Jesus Christ, who came to suffer and die. Uh, it is the righteousness of God manifest in the flesh. It is the mediator of the Son who the Old Testament prophesies about. It is the, the mediator of, of Christ who, uh, who does the works and miracles of testifying of who he himself is, the one sent by the Father to establish all righteousness. It is Christ that Scripture speaks of and makes us of God. Um, and then he, he, he ends that section by saying, well, why this is such a great, amazing thing, why it's a benefit to have Christ as the mediator. He simply says, one, so we may acknowledge and magnify the mercy of God in giving his son, uh, the great gift as a sacrifice of sins, two, that we may know God to be just, that he would certainly not just, you know, just forget it all, forgive all, and, and you know, uh, what is it, forgive and forget, but that he's going to actually take care of sin, that he would punish it, and even through that punishment in Jesus Christ on our behalf, pardon it. Uh, third, that, that in, in that way, totally dealing with sin, that we would be fully assured of having that pardon in the mediator, but then also life, um, which the mediator is both willing and able to grant unto us, uh, he says, fourth, because the mediator is the foundation, substance, and the very doctrine of the church. In other words, he is the life of the church in which we are grafted into. And also that uh, that the true doctrine of salvation might be taught and, uh, and defended uh, against heresies. So he's, uh, he, 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 he puts some really, uh, some really strong punches there. Um, He's saying that the centrality of, of the nature of having a mediator, one who reconciles parties that are at variance, it's it's all comes into its fruition, enlightened understanding in Christ alone. And then he says, for more on this, go go read about justification. And then he starts talking about the covenant, uh, which is related to the mediator. Yep. Um so as far as the Westminster, when it puts these things, two things together, uh, just again, a note on the order of the Westminster versus the Heidelberg. So this is actually the question that the Westminster asks before it asks the other questions about uh, him being God, um, 
Wait, no, I'm wrong. I'm looking at the wrong thing. This question, though, I do have up here. I was thinking about question 40, 40 but I've 40, actually yeah. got, got question 36 up, which is also relevant. <laughs> um, talking about the uh, mediator, who is the mediator that we have. Uh, question 36, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal son of God of one substance and equal with the father in the fullness of time became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. So here you have the Christological statement concisely stated regarding the uh, one person of the son and his two natures, the divine and human nature. Um, and how um, he became, how the one, the eternal Son of God, became man, took on a human nature, and was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person. This is something in our theology that I don't think a lot of people think about or pay attention to. A lot of people think that, you know, Christ was human in his incarnation. And then now he's gone back into heaven and he's purely spirit again. No, God, <laughs> Christ, Christ remains united to his human nature forever. In fact, uh, I believe it's in the Belgic Confession. Uh, the it's even stated there that even as Christ died, mm -hmm. um, I'm getting ready to preach through. Uh, well, I just got into the upper room discourse in mm -hmm. John, so getting near the end of. Jesus' life and ministry, but even in the grave, uh, mm -hmm. Jesus, uh, Jesus' divine nature, though he was in spirit in heaven, um, remained united to his human nature in his body, even in the grave. And uh, having been ascended or being resurrected bodily, he has ascended bodily. Christ still has a body. He still has a human nature forever. He has not returned to some just pure spirit form mm -hmm. you know some even struggle to understand this after the resurrection they think because of things like you know jesus comes through into a locked room to appear to his disciples well he's dematerialized he doesn't have a body anymore you know this is kind of the, some of the stuff that fueled some of the early church dualistic heresies like gnosticism and uh yeah, things of that sort Docetism, yeah, yeah, where God only seems to be, or where Christ only seems to be human. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but no, uh, it's very clear, and it's very little C Catholic teaching that um, Christ uh, remains, or that the Son of God has divine and human natures forever. Yeah, my, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny you bring that up. Cause I had, uh, I've, I've just gone through, um, I, you know, and in our evening we do, you know, uh, uh, catechetical preaching, uh, and I had been going through, uh, the, the upper discourse kind of in a disjuncted sense. Um, you know, I was out in John 16 just recently and now I'm in John 15. Um, but, uh, I, I've been going in through those, you know, uh, we had just finished, uh, the articles on, on Christology, uh, on the resurrection and ascension and, uh, you know, his, the state, the steps of his exaltation. Uh, you know, he, he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father. He sends the Spirit, uh, and presently we're at, you know, um, 
presently we were talking about, uh, you know, what this means for the church. And much of the theme I'm focusing on here is, uh, is precisely on the bodily ascended glorified Christ. The, uh, of, 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 of all the, uh, so, so of, of, of the catechism of the Heidelberg catechism, one of my favorite statements in the entire thing is in, uh, Lord's day 18 on the ascension, um, that in a question and answer, uh, 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 where is that? I want to make sure I just say it, say it directly. Um, the, so, so in Lord's Day 18, um, there's the question of how his ascension benefits us. And in the second part of it, it says, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, him, his members, up to himself. The, the Reformed doctrine of assurance um, is, is largely uh, tied to this, this, the understanding of the ascension and, and therefore also the, the sit at the right hand that he is reigning presently. All things are in his control. Uh, this, but I, I love the language, uh, I think, in some of the older forms of saying that his flesh, we have a token, a, a pledge, a, a seal a guarantee, a token of our own flesh in heaven. So we might conceive of having our own bodies there because we're united to the head. Uh, yeah. But it's, yeah, when you dig into the, just, just the depths of the doctrine of, uh, or, or, or the office of Christ as the mediator, you get an enormous scope of things related to it because, um, I mean, even, even before the foundations of the earth with the eternal decree, uh, Christ is, is, is the eternal head. Uh, he is the mediatorial head, and he is the mediatorial guarantee. That's why we can even talk about predestination. All this was caught up even before Jesus Christ, uh, before the Son came and took on flesh. We have, we have had forever a mediatorial head and guarantee. Yeah. Um... Another question is the one I meant, I thought that was coming up first, the one I meant to talk about. 40. Question 40. Uh, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So really, this is kind of just tying a bow on everything we've already talked about. The proper works of each nature, so those things that Christ does as divine and does as human to accomplish our redemption, um, are accepted of God because this is what was necessary. This is what had to be done in order to uh, obtain our redemption and then relied on by us because Christ was God and man. Uh, we can be confident that he has fulfilled all the requirements necessary to redeem us, and we can rely on them um, for our salvation. So. And and this is a uh, this is an important note for for the doctrine of the covenant, uh, for how the covenant works, uh, not for the covenant of works. I said for how the co how the covenant, referring to the covenant of grace, works. <laughs> um, this this is going to be a good segue here in a moment, but. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Ursinus talks about um, 
Ursinus there talks about how uh, the mediator is one who reconciles parties that are at variance as God and man. And that's essentially what uh, the larger catechism said in question, uh, in question answer 40. Um, he, uh, he goes on to, to say, then, what is a covenant? He says, he, it's a rather long definition, but has some very precise though. He, he says, it is a mutual contract or agreement between two parties in which one party binds itself to the other to accomplish something upon certain conditions, giving or receiving something, which is accompanied with certain outward signs and symbols for the purpose of ratifying in the most solemn manner the contract entered into, and for the sake of confirming it that the engagement may be kept inviolate. So making as a mediator making a contract as, if you will, a middleman, uh, setting the terms and the conditions of uh, of the parties and making it uh, established and effectual so it can't be broken. Uh, so so Jesus Christ is the one, in other words, who establishes that, right? Uh, he, he goes to say that, that uh, to explain a little bit more what he means, he says, we may define as a mutual promise and agreement. Note that phrase mutual. Okay, it's not, it's the sense in which it's not one way, though it is by its substance of grace. We may define it as a mutual promise and agreement between God and man, in which God gives assurance to men that he will be merciful to them, remit their sins, grant unto them new righteousness, the Holy Spirit, and eternal life by and for the sake of his son, our mediator. So in other words, complete deliverance and righteousness. Well, he goes on just a bit more here to say, on the other side, so mutual promise and agreement. What does man promise? On the other side, men bind themselves to God in this covenant that they will exercise, so active, exercise repentance and faith, or that they will receive with a true faith this great benefit which God offers and render such obedience as will be acceptable to him. So on one end, say that they will merit what is necessary or that they, with a true faith, receive the great benefit of what God offers and then thereby render such obedience to please him. Um, this mutual engagement between God and man is confirmed by those outward signs, which we call sacraments, which are holy signs, declaring and sealing unto us God's goodwill and our thankfulness and obedience. So there is, there's a, a it, its foundation is grace in order that we would live by faith alone and Christ alone. But it, it, its operations, broadly speaking, of the covenant of grace is a promise and fulfillment, a promise and obligation, a, a, a faith and obedience. Now, um, the, he, he ends up asking a question that how could this covenant between God and man be made? He says, well, we, as one of the parties, were not able to satisfy God for our sins. So uh, because and we would not have accepted of the benefit of redemption had it been purchased by another. So we couldn't do this, but rather it would be established by God. And he does so in two uh, modes in two. Uh, so one covenant of grace in its essence, but in two expressions, two ways or manners in which it would be experienced or expressed in its operations in history. And this is what takes us into question and answer 19. How do you come to know this? 
uh, I'll just read this question, turn it over to Andrew, because that was basically what I'm pointing at here. The, 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 the Holy Gospel tells me that who the mediator is. God himself began to reveal the, reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. And Andrew had noted last episode, I, you know, if you want to go back and listen to it, he said this question is essentially, uh, without stating it explicitly in the Heidelberg, this is essentially the doctrine of the covenant. Yep. The doctrine of the covenant of grace being variously administered. Uh, one thing you'll notice about the Heidelberg is, and the three forms of unity generally, as compared with the Westminster Standards, is they don't have as explicitly or as far developed of a covenant theology um, because they were earlier, but uh, it's still there. The concepts are still there. Um, and, and, and in general, the substance of what they say is the same, uh, for parallel <laughs> texts to That's question, hmm? pun, pun, that should be a good illustration or pun unintended in a sense. The substance was still, was generally there. There you go. The, uh, and yep. As their sinus himself said. <laughs> yep. Um, so some texts that get at these points, there's a few more of them from the Westminster larger catechism, because it does have this. Uh, more well-developed covenant theology question and answer 33 so we're actually now going back to before the discussion of why the god man uh, was the covenant of grace always administered after one in the same manner answer the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner but the administrations of it under the old testament were different from those under the new so uh, just in summary here you get this classic Reformed Doctrine of Covenant theology, one covenant of grace variously administered uh, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New. Um, and then at, building on and adding to that, explaining this in detail, question 34, how was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? Uh, the answer, the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances which did all four signify Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. Um so again, you see the various ways the covenant of grace was administered in the Old Testament. Um, you have the promises and the prophecies, which I don't think there's any controversy about that. But I think what's fascinating here is we also see the sacrifices, the circumcision, the Passover, um, other types and ordinances for signify Christ. They are considered here in the Catechism's answer part of the covenant of grace. I do think that there's an issue here, not to beat a dead horse, because I know we always end up coming back to these issues, but <laughs> advocates of a republication view that would say particularly that the Mosaic Covenant is a republication of the covenant of works, and uh, when they're talking about that, they particularly attach that to the legal aspects of it. Here you see things uh, of these legal aspects, you know, sacrifices, uh, circumcision, ordinances, things like that, 
Um, and yet being attributed to the covenant of grace, I think that's a bit of a conundrum that Republican advocates have to deal with and have to answer. Um, but still, again, what you see here is very classic Reformed covenant theology, the one covenant of grace administered in various ways. I've been preaching through Genesis. Uh, we've been in the life and times of Abraham, and you see how uh, the covenant was promised to Abraham. You can go back before that, how this covenant uh, was administered under Noah. God made a covenant with Noah. You see the covenant first appearing to Adam and Eve after the fall. It's the same covenant all throughout. You know, there's uh, ver there's um, differences in administration. There's progressive revelation of the covenant. You know, over time it becomes more explicit and more clear. There's different nuances, different emphases as it's administered in different kinds of people and different settings as it progresses from a you know, more of a family, a single family covenant to a national covenant. Um, uh, but but in at the end of the day, it's the one and the same covenant of grace throughout. Um, yeah, the uh, it's, it's interesting. Is the uh, so th there's elements of continuity and discontinuity. Um, I had read uh, a good bit of that that section from Ursinus a moment ago, in him saying that the covenant re referring to the new the, the the covenant of grace is one in substance in, in its very nature and essence of what it is uh but twofold in its circumstances and that's that's the language here with uh larger catechism 34 uh this grace variously administered the one covenant of grace but in two variations of its the mode of its administration but what 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 uh, Ursidus notes very interestingly, um, and he's saying, how do they uh, agree, and how do these two the, the, these two circumstances or administrations uh, compare, and how do they differ? And so he, he says, uh, so continuity and discontinuity. Um, he says first that they 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 have God as their author and author and Christ as the mediator. So this is how they agree. Um, Moses was a, a, just a type of the mediator of the Old Covenant, but all along it was really Jesus Christ, right? God is the author of the covenant and, and salvation, and Christ is the mediator. Uh, the Old and New Covenant agree, there's continuity, in that the promise of grace concerning the remissions of sins and eternal life granted was granted freely to such who believe by and for the sake of Christ. Okay? And this is, again, both in Old and New Testament. And then Ursinus says in point three, how do they, the Old and New Testament, agree? Where's their continuity? Ready? In the condition in respect to ourselves. And he says, in each covenant, God, in each covenant, God requires from men faith and obedience. And he quotes, walk before me and be thou perfect, Genesis 17, 1, and repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1, 15. The new covenant, therefore, agrees with the old in that which relates to the principal conditions, both on the part of God and on the part of man. Um, and then he goes on to speak of the the uh, of the differences in, in noting the promises of, of temporal blessings. Uh, so this is tied in part two, the forms of uh, um of, of the ceremonial aspect of the law and the uh, civil aspect of the law, how those would pass away in the circumstance of, so the, the external mode of the covenant of grace in uh, the promise of grace in the Mosaic 
externality in the Mosaic administration, that passes away. In the rites or signs, so the Passover, the feasts, uh, the, 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 the sacrifices, it's different because the, old, the new is clear. The gifts in which they confer, uh, particularly the Holy Spirit, is what makes it very different. In its duration, the everlasting quality of the covenant, uh, the new new covenant, uh, the obligation, um, he notes that they differ in that the old bound the people to the whole law, so ceremonial and judicial. The new binds us only to the moral and to the use of the sacraments of Christ. And then in their extent, so the scope of now the church, uh, people of all nations are included. And then the the... Uh, the, they differ in terms of their remark. Um, uh, the, the, there's there's a change in the way that uh, in the language that's employed, such as talking about uh, the Old Testament as terms of the, the Old Covenant, I should say, as as terms of law, and the New Covenant in terms of gospel. Uh, there's there's a certain just changing in the way the words are are uh, the phrases that are used. Mm-hmm. And all of that ties in perfectly to the last question from the Westminster that I wanted to share, which is question 35. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. So, what's new about the New Covenant? Well, the external forms of it are different, in that instead of being administered under the sacrifices and ceremonies and ordinances of the law, um, it is now by what we would call the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, um, but also there's a difference in scope. You know, I mentioned before that the Old Covenant, the Covenant of Grace in the Old Testament, there the administration was different depending on who it was being administered for. So like back under Noah, under Abraham, it's a covenant essentially limited to a single family. Then under Moses, it's to a nation. And then uh, the Davidic administration, very again, more with a national focus. But now, in the New Covenant, you have an international focus, a worldwide focus. As, uh, in Christ, a people is now brought in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not limited to Israel and those who would come and be a part of the nation and people of Israel, um, either ethnically or nationally. Um, no, it's something far greater than that. And then, of course, the external means. I mean, it's the means of which we partake now, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments. Um, this is this is what life in the covenant of grace is like for us, those of us who live on this side of Christ. It's still the same covenant, but this is the administration of it in which we live. Now, just as, uh, uh, before we wrap this up, uh, just a reminder, back when we were still Bobcast, and we have all of our Bobcast episodes archived at onceforalldelivered.com, we did like a 13 or 14 part series on covenant theology, <laughs> so if you really want to get down that well with us, um, we have done some of that work before, if you're interested in that, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, the uh, note here with that, the... Um... 
uh, as, a, as, a, as a side note in it, um, you know, there, there's, uh, there's still a measure in which, which, which has to be understood that, you know, um, uh, that the, just for clarity, when we're talking about obedience, even in agreement with our scientists, what's saying in, in, in the Westminster catechisms, you know, it's not at all in, in saying that the law saves or, you know, we, we, we recognize, you know, the statements of do this and live, right? Um, uh, you know, Leviticus 18.5, right? Uh, the, uh, there is that nature which the law demands but doesn't, doesn't um, prescribe the actual—it it doesn't give what is, it is actually required. It is, it is grace through faith alone in Christ alone um, because of our justification alone that, um, that we are able to, uh, to live and obey. So there, there's this do this and live. Um, there's the, you know, the gospel that says done for you, as some will say. Um, but we, but, you know, we're, we're able to rightly say, well, now we may live and do this out of gratitude. We may actually live and do. It's, uh, we have been made the righteousness of Christ. Um, that, that he, uh, we because of him and what he has given to us in the spirit who dwells in us, his own spirit that righteousness works in us through faith and so that when we when we do things we might say that that is properly our righteousness because it's gifted and given and worked through us it is however its source and it what it its source its life its vitality is entirely of grace it's godly it's, it, there's not a mixing of things here, but it, obedience is a fruit. It's outflow of what life is give, uh, poured into us and, and at work in us. Mm-hmm. And this is, um, you know, and this is, uh, I said, just a note here on, on the end here of this question. Um, you know, those, those first, the first couple words and the last words that say in question answer 19, how do you come to know all this? The Holy Gospel tells me, right? And then, that he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. God fulfilled it through Jesus Christ. Um, but the, the gospel, this, this is the message of salvation. It's the good news of salvation. And it, the, when, we, when we look at that, though, we don't say there, it's just the, this is just the fact of salvation. But we also say, what are the effects of the gospel? What are the effects of salvation? Right, uh, we know that the gospel causes us salva- to be saved. It, it it gives us that salvation, but it works something in us, and that's where Lord's Day Seven ends up going into saying, "What is the, the chief thing that is affected by the gospel? It, it's true faith, and everything from the Heidelberg Catechism, pretty much from here, at least, uh, yes, in, in a sense, everything is an explication." From here on, of, of I would say, in, in respect of, of Lord's Day Seven, which we'll get into Lord's Day Seven yes. later. Um, not ex. I think we're pretty well wrapped up our topic. So just a little bit about uh, where the show will be going in the next few weeks. Um, I don't know when we'll get back to the catechisms. Inevitably, we will. Inevitably, we always do. Uh, next week, we're going to be pre-recording some content. We have a guest interview uh, 
I don't know if we should say who with yet until it's done, but it'll be good. It'll be worth your time. Um, we'll, we'll have that. And then I'm also uh, working on also another episode on a potentially uh, controversial and hot button issue. But again, I think that will be worth your time. Uh, so over the next few weeks, we'll uh, have some new material for you. And eventually, yeah, we'll circle back around to the catechisms. Uh, this is a good series for us to come back to. You know, it reminds us of the uh, theology and doctrine in which we are um, grounded and, you know, gives us the reasons for which we do the things that we do and say the things that we say. It keeps us so. fresh, too, on it, you know, and, and keep looking back on things that we've, you know, that maybe we haven't, uh, we haven't, you know, looked at it in like a number of Lord's days, you know, or we're somewhere else further along or something, you know, because uh, Andrew, yeah. I think you meant, I don't remember if you mentioned it at some point that, you know, of course, uh, you know, you don't, you of course don't do like a evening uh, catechetical preaching, but you do incorporate it, I believe, right, the reading of, uh, of, of the Westminster Standards, right, into um, service yep. itself, the liturgy. Yep, we do a confession of faith. It's usually something from the Westminster Standards. I've actually been uh, this year working on uh, reading uh, through the shorter catechism, and in mm -hmm. about a year we will have read through the entire thing. And mm -hmm. I offer usually some brief comments and explanation on it. So not actually preaching it, but yeah, using it mm -hmm. as a part of our worship and uh, and uh, confessing it and discussing yeah, keeping it, it uh, in our worship. Keeping services. it familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. well oh. i mean it, it can be easy easy for those of us in the ministry we have to you know cram all this stuff for our ordination exams and that you know i had to go through two <laughs> sets i had to go through the urc and then flip the switch and do it again in the opc you kind of cram that stuff and then you get done and get to the end it can be easy to be like okay well i did that and now i don't have to worry about it anymore but no we we still need this doctrine throughout all our mm -hmm. lives, and we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of these things yeah. and putting them into practice. Right for for us in the URC, you know, typically uh, we we uh, will you know we'll do sermons on catechetical text, usually the three forms of unity, most commonly the Heidelberg Catechism. But then, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we all for for us we also do our, our catechism classes, um, you know, for the for the Covenant kids and. Uh, you know, and so they'll be usually working through at least at at some point or several points. They'll be working through the three forms of unity. Uh, I believe I'm teaching uh, the Heidelberg Catechism for high scores this year. So it's you know all this. So even though we cram it for the ministry again, yeah, for for, for ordination, this uh, these kind of things keep us in the habit. And you know, we would really pray that that our 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 confessional standards um that our reformed standards uh of the westminster the and uh the three forms but also even second helvetic confession and others um uh that these would be the sources that we keep going back to and familiarizing ourselves with that because you know these are you know th these are time tested uh uh and have a, a have had a broad consensus of saying yes, this is our theology. You know, this is this is how we talk about it, our doctrine. So. Yeah, and like for me, I was uh, before I took on preaching at a second church on a temporary interim basis. I was teaching the adult Sunday school class at our church, and yeah, we're going through the larger catechism using 
uh, Johannes Gerhardus Voss's commentary as our primary text. And uh, because even adults need to study this stuff and be reminded of this stuff too. But um, yeah. anyway, um, I think uh, that's probably as good a place as any to stop. Um, we're getting up near time anyway. Uh, so this has been Once for All Delivered. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. You can reach us in all the usual places. Uh, you can reach us on social media at OFAD Podcast uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And they're calling it X now instead of Twitter. It's always going to be Twitter to us, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not on uh, it. Visit our website. Consider supporting us if you uh, like what we're doing and would like to offer financial support. You know, whatever we get, we use it to try to make the show better, uh, try to keep working the bugs out of our technology. It's been the big thing lately. Um, of course, uh, Caleb and I both pastor churches. I pastor the Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. Caleb is at the Rock Valley United Reformed Church in Rock Valley, Iowa. If you or someone you know is in the area, one of those places, looking for a church, or you know somebody who is, uh, look us up. We'd love to have you for those as well. But uh, yeah. Caleb, any final words, final right, thoughts? That or uh, that, or even uh, if you're passing through or whatever, or uh, want a cup of coffee, want to want to complain, and uh, maybe you know uh, uh, yell at our in in our faces for. Uh, you know, for something that we said or did, I don't know. Um, that's always welcomed. But uh, I'm sure you could find a reason to yell at us if you wanted. Easy. We're kind of good that but way. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. Keep in touch. Listen to uh, some of the older episodes and stick with us uh, for the next ones. Take yep. it, Heidi. Take it, Heidi. Take it, Heidi. Take it, Heidi. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.